there's a tenderness that comes with national tragedy. In fact, I think I can say that you can pretty much trace the beginnings of most historical revivals to the heels of some major cataclysmic event. Let me give you a few. The Irish, the Irish potato famine of the late 1800s, it sparked a calling out to God in ways that that area had not seen. A number of, of early colonial wars contributed to the starts of the revivals which swept through America in what was called the Great Awakenings in the 1700s. And some of the spiritual fervor of the early 1950s, namely through ministries like Billy Graham and, and many other faithful preachers of God's word, it has been linked to some of the turmoil or coming out of the turmoil from World War II. Now for the majority of our memories, we can go back to like the 9-11 attacks. I don't know where you were, at what stage of life you were in, but church services seemed to hit differently a couple of weeks after those attacks. And I don't think that I am alone in that experience. In fact, there was a Pew Research study taken only a month after the attacks, which revealed that nearly 40% more Americans were attending religious services more often. It, I believe it was at 38%. And then after the attacks in September, by late November, we were up to like 80%, almost 80% people going to church services. That is astounding. There's a tenderness that happens after or on the heels of a national tragedy. And that is just where we find ourselves in the book of Joel. We hardly know anything about this man save what he is introduced to us as in the very beginning of the text in chapter 1 verse 1 where it says, The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Don't you like those names? Pethuel. Autocrat kept trying to change that to pothole as I was writing my sermon. Pethuel. That's about it. That's all we know about this man named Joel. He is among 14 other Joels in the Old Testament, but none of them really shed any light as to who he was. That his name means, oh, it's good, the Lord is God. And it points us out why so many would have wanted to name their son that, but even still, we know absolutely nothing about him other than that his father's name was Pethuel. Because of his familiarity and reporting of what's going on and, or maybe the lack of activity in the house of the Lord in verse 13 of chapter 1, many have guessed that he was a priest in Israel. But that truly is a guess. I, I think it's probably likely, but we don't know. Joel, he just pops up seemingly out of nowhere, and he has been given the name by many commentators as the anonymous prophet. But that doesn't mean that Joel's words should be taken lightly. National tragedy struck. I'm going to be jumping around all over these three chapters of Joel, so if you're not very familiar with your Bible, you may just want to follow on screen, but let me read to you a, a bit about what this national tragedy looked like in Joel 1.10. The field is wasted. The land 
mourns, for the grain is ruined, the new wine is dried up, the oil fails. Be ashamed, you farmers, wail, you vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine has dried up, and the fig tree has withered, the pomegranate tree, the palm tree also, and the apple tree. All the trees of the field are withered. Skip down to verse 19 of the same chapter. O Lord, to you I cry out, for fire has devoured the open pasture and a flame has burned all the trees of the field. The beasts of the field also cry out to you, for the water brooks are dried up and fire has devoured the open pastures. What has happened in Israel? What is this great national calamity that has fallen the people of God? Has an enemy enemy developed some kind of super weapon against Israel? Have spies crept in and bankrupted their economy? What could possibly cause all this tragedy in the land flowing with milk and honey, as it's always been called? An insect. Tiny, by the standard of every major world problem, an insect that our English versions of the book of Joel describe as a locust, although we don't know exactly what bug we're talking about here. Hordes and hordes of ravenous grasshoppers have descended upon the land of Israel and they have laid waste to everything. Swarms have been so thick that they blacked out the sun. They landed on every growing thing and they devoured it to the point where there is no green in Israel. There is no fruit. There are no seeds. There is no growing at all. And not only does it knock out their crops, but the Israelites' flocks have nothing to eat. The barrenness has affected their drinking too. All the grapes have been devoured and without any plants to block erosion, groundwater has literally leaked out of the land. Without anything green or anything wet, the land is open to lightning strikes which burn every single little stalk that might have been left by the locusts. It is an absolute, total devastation. Hear Joel's voice in verse 4 of 1. What the chewing locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the crawling locust has eaten. And what the crawling locust left, the consuming locust has eaten. I don't think... Many of us, or truly any of us, can understand the depredation here. Even with Joel's horribly poetic eloquence, our farmers, our avid gardeners in our congregation, they might be able to understand it better than I, but even still, there's no ancient crop adjuster who's walking over Israel. He's not taking notes of all the insurance claims that the farmers have have called out on their crops. None of that. There is no insurance. There's no safety net. There's no backup plan. The locusts, they have not just ruined this year's harvest. They have disrupted years of planting, growing, harvesting, shepherding. This is not just a one-year sentence of starvation. This is decade, if more, of a death sentence for Israel. You may recall in the summer of 2020, there was a real global problem along with all the other real global problems in 2020. Our missionaries in Kenya, the Simmons family, they sent this video 
to our church begging for prayers because in Kenya they had this horde of grasshoppers or, or locusts that had descended upon them. You can hardly see it in this shaky cell phone video, but this was bad. You can see those white flakes. All of, that, all of those are insects that are flying up and they're running away. There are pictures that have come up from that area of a lot more where you couldn't even see a tree because it was completely and totally covered in these insects. Listen to an article excerpt which describes even worse conditions than what's pictured in that video. It says the swarms are gargantuan masses of tens of billions of flying bugs. They range anywhere from a square third of a mile to 100 square miles or more with 40 million to 80 million locusts packed into a half of a square mile. They bulldoze pasture lands and dark clouds the size of football fields and small cities. In northern Kenya, one swarm was reported to be 25 miles long by 37 miles wide. It would blanket the city of Paris 24 times over. So what Joel is saying is not an overstatement. He's not using hyperbole, exaggeration when he gathers the people together and he says in verse two of chapter one, hear this, you elders. Give ear, all you inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days or even in the days of your fathers? Tell your children about it. Let your children tell their children and their children another generation. When tragedy strikes, if we can find someone responsible in our minds, it just seems to make things a little bit better. It makes things have a little bit more sense to them. If I can just blame somebody, this is why this has happened. I'm not sure why we humans are hardwired that way, but we are. If there's a problem in the land, if we could just blame some group, some sect, some person who's responsible for it, well, Who's to blame for this devastation? Who can they attack? Who can Israel get even with? Who can they pour out all of their anger towards? Well, if there were an insurance claim back in their day, this would have been cited as an act of God. I mean, by definition, this is a natural event caused without human intervention that could not have been prevented by reasonable foresight or care. All of you insurance people are like, you're speaking my language. We know what that term means in the insurance world, act of God. It means no one is responsible. It's just one of those things. Sorry. But in all of its literal reality, the swarms of locusts actually were an act of God. You want to blame someone, Israel? God caused all this. It's not until chapter 2, verse 25, where we really find this out, but we find out that God calls the insects my army, which I sent among you. God, why would you do such a thing? A generation will starve. Why? Who do you think you are to send your army? 
The answer is overly simplistic. We don't want to hear it, but it's true. The Lord did this to get their attention. Now hear me, and hear me well. I'm not suggesting that all suffering is caused by God. I'm not one of Job's friends this morning. You got something wrong in your life? Well, you must, be, you must have, have some unrepentance in your life. I'm not saying that. Very often, we suffer because of our own wrong decisions and maybe even more often simply because we live in a fallen world where horrible things happen. However, there are some cases, and the book of Joel is a prime example, when God sends suffering into our lives as a means of correction. Please hear me. There are some times in our life when God sends suffering as a means of correction in trying to get our attention. Recently, during a Sunday evening service, I walked our congregation through the verse in Hebrews, which encourages us to not despise the chastening of the Lord. And I gave three reasons why we ought to be thankful for God's correction. I said, number one, God's correction reminds us that we are His, right? Like a good parent, God corrects His kids. Number two, God's correction keeps us from greater danger. If we're left to ourselves, we would probably fall into deeper sin or a more, more dangerous situation, further from God. And so he corrects us to bring us back off the cliffside. And number three, I said that God's correction makes us more like himself. His corrective hand is the very thing that chips away at us and makes us into the image of Christ. Look, I double down on what I said a few Sunday nights ago. All of that is true, but here's the thing about that sermon and others like it, maybe even this one today. Those are really easy to preach, like really easy. Every single point is laid out right there in the text of Hebrews 12. Every single point that I'm gonna try to expose to you from Joel is there in the text. They're really easy to preach, but they are really hard to live really hard to live. But what I'm trying to get across to us is that God corrects his children because as torturous as his discipline may be in the moment, it is ultimately for our good. Whatever joy you may have apart from him is ultimately evil. Let me say it again. I want you, if you're not paying attention, I want you to zone in right here, right now on this single statement. As torturous as God's discipline may be in the moment, it is ultimately for our good. And whatever joy you may have apart from him is ultimately evil. That happiness that you feel when you are apart from God, it's like a slow-working, good-tasting poison. And God is going to do anything to make you stop drinking that poison. Don't believe me? Read on. 
Here's Joel gathering God's people, calling for them to repent of their sin. Now, we're not told exactly what Israel's sin is at the moment. Namely, because we know so little about Joel and we aren't even exactly sure at what point in their history all this has taken place, but I imagine that their sin is the same as it's always been. They're either going through the motions of dry, ritualistic religion, sacrificing another lamb, killing another bull, pouring out another wine offering, just going through the motions, or they've forsaken the Lord and they've chosen to worship other gods. I think it's that one. But whatever the sin is, Joel screams at the top of his lungs for them to wake up. In verse five, he says, awake, you drunkards, and weep, and wail, you drinkers of wine, because the new wine, for it has been cut off from your mouth. Wake up! You're starving, and yet you're trying to drink yourself to death. You're drinking the poison. I'll stop at anything. I won't stop at anything to make you stop drinking this good tasting, long working poison. And so he says in verse eight, lament like a young widow. Verse 11, be ashamed and wail you farmers and vine dressers because there's nothing you can do about this situation. Verse 13, lament you priests, wail ministers. He says in verse 14, consecrate a fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land into the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Do something. Because we're starving. And all this is for a reason. You say, all of this is over a locust plague? Well, yes and no. Because the message of Joel, the message of Joel is a hard-hitting one that comes on the heels of a locust plague. Israel is reeling from the economical and ecological effects of this devouring insect. And that's when Joel takes the mic and he essentially says, Israel, if you think this is bad, you don't know anything. Because there is coming an army that's going to make you wish that we were just battling bugs again. I want you to hear Joel's imagery as he takes all that they've just experienced with the creeping insects that have infested their lives for so long and he applies those exact same attributes to his coming warring army. A day of dark and gloominess. A day of clouds and thick darkness like the morning clouds spread over the mountains of people come great and strong, the like of whom has never been, nor will there ever be any such after them, even for many successive generations. A fire devours before them and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them and behind them a desolate wilderness. Surely nothing shall escape them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses and like swift steeds, so they run with a noise like chariots over mountains. They leap like the noise of a flaming fire that devours the stubble, like a strong people set in the battle array. Before them, the people writhe in pain. All faces are drained of color. They run like mighty men. They climb the wall like men of war. Everyone marches in formation and they do not break ranks. They do not push one another. Everyone marches as in 
those in his own column. Though they lunge between the weapons, they are not cut down. They run to and fro in the city. They run on the wall. They climb into the houses. They enter at the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and moon grow dark. And the stars diminish their brightness. And again we learn that this army, these locusts, it's no tool of the evil one that's been sent by God. The Lord gives voice before his army, for his camp is very great. For strong is the one who executes his word, for the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Who can endure it? God's doing this. Plagues and armies, famine and war. I say again, God will stop at nothing to get you to stop drinking from that slow-acting, good-tasting poison of a life lived apart from him. If he's going to have to send an army, if he's going to have to send famine, he'll do it. So let us see what he's trying to get our attention from. God reveals to Joel a vision of the future that Joel keeps calling the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. Man, it sounds good, doesn't it? The day of the Lord. Well, it is a good day to those who are on the Lord's side. Similar to like how V-Day is good if you were the allied troops was not good if you were one of the access powers. And this day of the Lord, God is going to call all the nations of the world into what he calls the valley of decision. And that sounds good too, doesn't it? Valley of decision. That sounds hopeful, doesn't it? But the valley of decision is nothing like what the southern gospel songs and preachers would love to make it out to be. A place where you must go to make a decision to give your life to God. Kind of like Elijah on Mount Carmel. Choose you this day whom the Lord will serve. No, no, no. The valley of decision is more like a legal term. Final decision. The court case has already taken place. Now all that's left is judgment. There won't be any conversions or decisions to follow Christ made in the valley of decision. It will not happen. They have already been made as a nation upon nation throughout history, gathers and makes war against God. They are bent on their own desires, on living their lives apart from God, and they have sinned against God, and they hurt, they have hurt the innocent for far too long. And so just as a taste of their depravity, God offers this as evidence in verse three of chapter three. He says, they have cast lots for my people. They have given a boy as payment for a harlot, as sold a girl for a wine that they may drink. That's how bad things had gotten. People who were created in the very image of God were used as poker chips and bar tabs. They've used, abused, slaved people for their own selfish desires. And God, who is a good judge, will do what every good judge will always do, justice. 
where once God had offered peace and called for them to beat their swords into plows and their spears into pruning hooks, like in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4, now God taunts them, and he says in Joel 3.10, beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, or I think lie to themselves and say, I am strong against God. Assemble and come, all you nations, and gather together all around. Cause your mighty ones to go down there, O Lord. Judgment is coming. And God wants to save his people from all of that final battle that has eternal consequences. He wants to save anyone from that final decision. And so now Joel cries out in Joel 2.12. Now therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. So rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. In many ways, that was 10 pages of introduction. I got three left. Repent and turn. That's the message of Joel. And within this call to repentance, I hear three excuses that people often give for not repenting. Number one, it's too late. It's too late. Number two, I've done this before. Didn't work the first time. Walk this path. I've done this before. Number three, God's through with me. He can't use me. I'm too filthy. Too much of a stain. I want you to hear me. The enemy wants you to think one or all of those things this morning. But the Lord has answered every excuse that you could possibly give as to why I ought not repent. Number one, it's too late. In the very middle of their devastation and weakness caused by their own rebellion against God, God says, now, therefore, in verse 12, chapter 2. Now, therefore, turn to me. Now. Now. Starving and weak with nothing to offer God in return, you are exactly in the right place now to receive grace. All of the other times before you were kidding yourself thinking that God saves you because you're basically a good person or because you've done something to give God or you have something to give God. Now, without anything, you've become a student of the grace of God. 
Now you are primed and ready to receive grace because you've got nothing to offer. It's not too late. Absolutely not. Do you still have breath in your lungs? Then I believe that the Holy Spirit is still drawing. It's not too late. Number two, I've done this before. I've tried this whole religion thing before and it it got me nowhere. It just brought shame and guilt in my life. I've done all of this. No, listen, God says, rend your heart in verse 13, not your garments. Maybe you've done some kind of outward show of religion. You've walked down to an altar. You've prayed a prayer. You may have even jumped into a baptistry. But all of that up until now was just an outward show of tearing garments. But that's not what God requires. That's religion. That's outward shows of things. He doesn't want you to change your clothes. He doesn't want you to just put clean clothes on dirty body. He desires a changed heart. Instead of rending your clothes, rend your heart instead and fasting and weeping and mourning will accompany that heart rendering. I've done all this before. I would submit that you have not. You've just done outward shows of tearing your garments. So you may have had a religious experience or two before. Maybe you've been flying under the radar and you look like a Christian. I'm telling you, looking like a Christian will not matter in the valley of decision. But probably the greatest lie that many believe and give as an excuse as to why they do not repent is number three, God is through with me. And with that you can read in, I've gone too far, I've done too many things. Hear me, such a resignation does not understand the depths of the grace of God. Verse 13 tells us, for he is gracious and he's merciful, slow to anger and great kindness. You have no idea the width, the breadth, the depths of the grace of God He saved a thief who was cursing his name mere seconds before he asked for grace. He saved a man who had just denied him three different times. He saved a murderer of Christians as he was on his way to go murder more Christians. God saved him on the road to Damascus. If you really knew, if you really knew God, you would never say he's through with me. You would jump in when we sing, could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of paper made, were every tree on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole though stretched from sky to sky. Oh, love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong it shall forevermore endure. The saints and angels song, you have not gone too far. It is not too late. And if you've done it before, I beg you to be sincere this time. There is no excuse to the call of repentance. 
the Lord meets them all with His astounding, unfathomable, relentless, marvelous grace. And then He does the unthinkable. He restores. You say, Corey, it's about time. We're almost over. The title of the sermon is The Lord Will Restore. You've yet to even get to that point. We got 10 minutes left, buddy. The Lord restores. Joel 2.25 So I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. The crawling locust, the consuming locust, the chewing locust, my great army which I sent among you. I'll restore those years. In verse 26, you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you and my people shall never be put to shame. Then you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel. I am the Lord your God and there is no other. There's a play on Joel's name there, by the way. The Lord is God. Then you'll know Joel. Then all of Israel will know Joel that the Lord is God. My people shall never be put to shame. He will restore. How many of you could attest to that? That he'll, he'll restore? Now look, I hear you Bible scholars in our church. That's an Old Testament promise made directly to Israel in a specific situation and should not be universally applied to all peoples throughout the ages. I know. I know. I'm teaching a class tonight on how to not take verses out of context. I know. People do tend to throw these verses around in expectation of bigger businesses and better marriages and more money after turmoil. That's an incorrect exegesis of this text. You'll hear it on just about every TBN broadcast that you turn to. You may be right. I don't think you are. Because God does restore. He has taken what was broken and beaten and chewed up and he gives new life. And what's even better than, than that is that in the very idea of restoration is that he makes it better than what it once was with a few upgrades. I tend to think that this is exactly what the Apostle Paul was talking about when he wrote in Romans eight eighteen, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Whatever you suffer in this life is nothing compared to the glory that will be in eternity. If I could put it in good old songbook theology, it will be worth it all when we see Jesus. 
everything that we suffer in this life, any amount of correction used against us to bring us back to Him, it will be worth it all when we see Him. The locusts, the army sent against us, we will praise God for them because the suffering does not compare to the glory which we will see in Christ one day. He restores. I'm preaching to about five of you this morning, apparently. He restores. Tim Keller, who himself knows a thing or two about suffering right now as he is diagnosed with stage four terminal pancreatic cancer, he once wrote eight years ago, he said, everything sad is going to come untrue and it will somehow be greater for having once been broken and lost. Let me say it again. Everything sad is going to come untrue and it will somehow be greater for having once been broken and lost. Israel will thank God for the locusts because in the redemption of Christ, he is making all sadness come untrue and the glory of Christ revealed. That is the message of Joel. Anything that the Lord does to bring you to himself is good. We may hate it in the moment. We may hate the correction. We may spurn the correction. We may rebel and headstrong as we are. But still the message is repent. Everything sad is coming untrue and it will somehow be greater for having once been broken and lost. Thanks for listening to New Hope Church's podcast. If you would like to listen to more content from our church, follow us at newhopefwbc.com.